You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Emerald Podcast Network. My name is Emerson Malone. I'm a writer for thedailyemerald.com. With me here in the studio is UO Digital Arts Professor Craig Hickman, uh, who's also the author of Oxide. Craig, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for asking me. You have this background in computer programming, and you I was reading on your website that you've been working with computers since the 70s. You have this picture of yourself in, like, 72 working with computers who were in this, like, corduroy blazer looking right. like a very stoic beatnik. Mm-hmm. Um, so around that time, is the stereotype of computer programmers true to life where it's, you know, 20-something engineers working out of their garage? Was that was that real? Well, I back then, um, there was not a real romantic kind of notion of the programmer like uh, I think there is today. Uh, it, they were actually kind of generally seen as people who were very, very kind of probably, you know, uh, conservative and, and not imaginative uh, and not creative, but kind of a just the facts uh, uh, attitude. Uh, and that, of course, has changed. Um, but that's the way it was back then, and I never thought that I would actually do programming. It just never entered my mind that that would be something I'd be interested in. I was kind of in the arts and and uh, and photography. Yeah, you you had this. Where were you around this time? Where were you living? At that time, I was living in Olympia, Washington. I had just gotten my first real job out of college, which was at the Evergreen State College uh, as a photographer, and it was the first year that it opened, and it was actually quite an exciting experience to uh, be there. Were you working on programming while you were there? Uh, no, actually, uh, my uh, well, yes, uh, I started uh, when one day I was walking down the hall and uh, heard this, uh, you know, kind of clacking sound coming from this room, and I saw a friend of mine in there, and it was full of these like typewriter-like devices, these teletype machines, and and uh, he asked, uh, I asked him what he was doing, and he said that he was uh, programming, and he showed me a few lines of that. And I was just hooked. It was. It was. I didn't have a choice in the matter. It was like like true love or something. But I certainly never intended to uh, study that. And I've really never really taken a class in it. I shouldn't admit that being uh, at a university. But it has all been out of my own interest in a, a certain kind of passion. So you're kind of like self-taught. Oh yeah. Yeah. All the way. Yeah. Yeah. Which also means that for me, programming has always been exactly what I wanted it to be. I've never had to, uh, you know, write a program for someone else. It's like if an idea comes into my mind, I can do it. And if I don't want to do it, I don't have to. And so it's been kind of, uh, uh, that's been a very good thing. Right. So you always like made programs that you yourself would use. Yeah, exactly. That's why it was also on your website. You made that uh, program camera that you, it looks like you put out in the open public domain. Correct. Yeah. And so was that just like to calculate f-stop and shutter speed? Well, um, it, People who work in you know in photography know that the you know the f-stop and the shutter speed have this reciprocal relationship when it's combined uh, with the uh, ISO of the film, and there's this kind of you know three-way uh, kind of uh, you know pull and push thing going on. And uh, I thought the computer would be a good way to actually make a model of that. Now, now today we kind of take that for granted. Uh, as a matter of fact, that you know your iPhone itself is the camera it, it doesn't it's not just the teaching device it's right. the thing itself but but back then that wasn't the case and so i made an interactive uh, program that when you changed one it would show the effect and that kind of it does the seesaw exactly, exactly yeah yeah and you write on this is all part of the um history of kid pics that you wrote on your website you write that you're watching your son michael 
Uh, ben. Ben. I'm going to edit that out because okay. that was embarrassing. <laughs> You're watching your son, Ben, uh, get super frustrated because he, he was playing with Mac Paint on the Macintosh, mm-hmm. which was right. – was, so it was after 84. Mm-hmm. Um, Correct. What was Mac Paint like? Um, I believe, actually, Mac Paint as a just as a program and its simplicity and the design of its uh, screen and interface is actually probably maybe the most beautiful program ever written. Uh, um, and uh, uh, yeah, it was very limited by today's standards, but it was just really inviting, and it was, it was really a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. But of course, with when you can't read, then uh, you know Ben would get into situations that he couldn't get out of. Uh, you know, where there'd be a dialogue box come up, and he would, you know, that would be the end of the show. Yeah, right. Um, so when you're watching your son get super frustrated with this program. And you, it's, it's interesting for you because you have a background in computer programming for, you know, years and years before your son even came around. Mm-hmm. What's it like seeing your son, who's probably like a toddler at this point? Yeah, maybe? he was three. He was three. And, like, he's getting this early experience with his computer, and it's already, like, very, like, stressful for him. Yes, yeah. What yeah. was that like? Well, I, I had a number of uh, of reactions to that. One, it was kind of, I mean, I didn't like it that he was there getting frustrated. Uh, on the other hand, I have to say that was probably a lot of my own reaction to working with a computer as everyone else's. And, uh, and I like the idea of having a problem to solve. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, but it was, uh, you know, it was not a pleasant thing. Now, actually, Ben today is 30. And uh, he is a professional uh, user interface designer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where is he? He uh, Right now he's working at a company um, called Pluto TV in Los Angeles. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So he overcame that initial oh, yeah. Yeah. contention. Mm-hmm. Did something, like when you when you see your son like not understanding it, did something tick in your brain that like if kids don't understand these computers, which are obviously this monolithic symbol of our lives, especially in 88 or whenever right. the year was, um, did you think like they might not ever be fully comfortable if this is their relationship with the computer? Um, well, to tell you the truth, that uh, most of the user interface problems that I tried to solve were problems that I noticed that the students I taught at the University of Oregon had in learning the computer. Okay. Uh, and, and so it wasn't just Ben. Um, um, now, keep in mind, at that time when we taught a com- course in, in computers... Uh, Wait, in, so you, design, were, you were here yeah, at that point? Yes, okay. I was teaching here. Yeah, yeah, I, I was te- teaching here. Um, but back then, one the first thing you had to do was to teach a student how to use a mouse. And we all just are, you know, today, you probably grew up, no one ever taught you to use a mouse. Right. Uh, but then it wasn't quite clear to people how it worked. They pick it up and I know, you know, we had kind of trying to, you know, roll it on the desktop really fast to kind of get the ball spinning, <laughs> you know, I mean, because those things aren't obvious. Um, yeah. And so there were lots of problems and frustrations. And so, yeah, it wasn't just kind of Ben's things. It was like everybody was right. was frustrated. And it was, it was a great time because there was lots of uh, lots of stuff to solve. After this, like, experience, you had to conceptualize, like, there needs to be some sort of accessible program that even my son would be able to use practically. Like, so what What were the sort of principles that you wanted the new program to have? Well, um, one of the main principles was the program needed to explain itself that, uh, you know, the, 
the manual, and this was on a Macintosh, so people didn't read manuals anyway. Uh, and so things kind of need to just kind of be obvious, or at least a little experimentation. Maybe not obvious, but a little bit of experimentation and curiosity uh, will uh, kind of, it'll teach itself. Right. So that was a lot of it. And, um, and I wanted to make it so that there were no kind of dead-end alleys. You know, for instance, we had, back then they had desk accessories, which you could pull down and it would, you know, they'd do different things. Well, some of those would require a dialogue box, and if you couldn't read or deal with that, you know, it didn't work. So the program had to be um, one that would just keep going no matter what. And I actually had to violate some of the user interface guidelines of Apple at that time in order to do that. And so at what point did you send it to uh, Broderbund? Well, um, there were a couple of, well, I was selling a $25 version out of my house at the time. And uh, that how, was, how did that go? Well, that actually went all right. Certainly nothing like what ended up happening later on, but it was great to go out to the mailbox every day and there'd be these $25 checks. And uh, I, I sold uh, exactly 100 that way. Um, um, but, but that was good. But there were a couple of people who were kind of helping me promote it. And uh, interestingly, they both contacted the same person independently. It got to the same person uh, in Los Angeles who knew someone from Broderbund, which was in the Bay Area. And, uh, and so that's how they got a copy of it. And I didn't know they had it. And I just got a call one day out of the blue um, from them saying they wanted to publish it. And so were you burning them on floppies or CDs? Oh, floppies, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. the the first um, The first version of Kid Picks uh, actually came on two. There were there were two discs, and one of them was the operating system. It was the original Macintosh. That was there was no hard disk in the computer. Uh, so not only was the program on a floppy disk, but the operating system had to be on a floppy disk. Yeah. Too. Okay. So, uh, yeah. And it's a black and white game, obviously. Like the first incarnation of Kid Picks was much different than how it evolved and snowballed into something much bigger. Right. Well, the real first version of Kid Picks was a free black and white only, um, you know, public sh domain shareware kind of thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was definitely very small. Yeah. Was the oh no guy in the original? Well, the original didn't uh, have sound. That was, um, you know, a later version. Actually, this, the story is uh, I did this black and white version, which is very simple, because I had to teach myself how to do these drawing tools. You know, how do you make a lasso tool? Uh, and I, yeah, there was no place to, that I knew of to look that up. I, I kind of had to figure those. And so, out. just to explain to the listeners, the oh no guy was if you made a mistake, you'd hit you'd hit this face, and then would say oh no, mm -hmm. and then it would undo. It's like you know, control Z on right. the computer. Yeah. And then the lasso, you circle a section or some sort of segment, and then it'll pluck it out, and then you can move it around. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, th th yeah, the first the version didn't have any sound, but Ken O'Connell, who was my department head here at the time, it really bothered Ken that I wasn't selling it, that I was giving it away, because he thought it was good enough to sell. Well, I, you know, maybe it was, maybe, maybe it wasn't, but I liked erring on the side of people actually using it, and if it's free, a lot more people are going to use it. So that's why you put it in the public domain is to get, like, traction and to get users? Well, at the time, yeah. I, I, and I wasn't thinking any farther um, with the public domain version than that. that right. Was, that was the end, you know, for as far as I knew. Uh, but uh, I, I ended up, just to kind of make Ken happy, I told him, well, okay, there's a color Macintosh coming out, and I'll make a color version, and I'll, and I'll charge for it. Mm -hmm. right? So When uh, was that? 
um, that would have been 19... Um, 1989, well, no, 1990, that would have been 90. Okay. 90 the Kid Picks, com the real commercial version came out in 91. So this was in 1990. Um, and I thought it was going to take a long time to convert the black and white to the color, but actually I did all the basic work in one day. It wasn't that hard. And so I had lots of time to add other things, and then that's where the idea for the sound came along. Mm -hmm. so. so sound was its own beast to tackle and... Right, and I have to say at the Macintosh at that time, it didn't work quite right either. I had to do lots of kind of programming things to get around some of the issues. Yeah. And, all, you know, like when you're drawing it with a tool, the sound needs to kind of repeat on its own. Uh, and it, that was, you know, there were some issues there. Yeah. But I got it to work. And I, I just used, you know, it was either me or my family members uh, making the sounds. Uh, but then when it went to Broderbund, they had actually a professional sound, you know, team. studio team. And... Um, and the the sounds I was making in front of my computer, you know, with the fan going and everything, <laughs> they, that was not up to their standards, so they redid them. Um, did you make the – where did the Oh No Guy's voice come from? Was that you or was that someone else? Well, that was – Was that Broderbund? one that came out was Broderbund. Um, I had my own in the original one. But, uh, you were the original voice? Uh, I believe so, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, – yeah. I had to do some uh, serious spelunking on the internet to find a little one-second MP3 of just that clip. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. But I found it. Yeah. Well, an interesting thing, too, about the original version, original black-and-white version, is that um, since it was kind of public domain, that uh, about a year ago, uh, someone brought to my attention that, that someone in Australia, a program in Australia, had make a, made an emulator for the original Macintosh that runs on the web, and he had used that original KidPix version as the demo. And so you can actually uh, go to that site today and run the original version in a browser. And it isn't like just uh, you know somebody making up a uh, kind of a copy of it. It's the same code. It actually runs that same program, and it's kind of fun. And it does it quite well. Yeah, it still works. It still works, and it doesn't work on a... Uh, on a regular computer because they've changed, you know, the operating system a number of times, but it will work on this web version, this web em emulator. Yeah. Emulators are good because it, it, it means that things that are more antiquated programs can still be, you know, usable. That's right. Yeah. It's really nice. Um, so there were a lot of, like, destructive tools mm -hmm. that you used in the toolbar. Like the there was a, a case of dynamite that you could right. drag over to the canvas yeah, and yeah. blow up whatever you just yeah. created. Yes. Um, now, that's kind of interesting because that was one of the more popular tools. Um, but at, but Broderbund started uh, to refer to that actually as the firecracker tool, not dynamite. Oh, okay. I had, you know, kind of thought of the dynamite part, but <laughs> but they decided it was something else. And and interestingly, you know, it sold all over the world. And like in, um, in Ireland, it was changed to a jack-in-the-box because at that time there was, there was the political... Uh, you know, kind of situations with bombings and whatnot. In Ireland? In Ireland at that time, yeah. Was that the the the, the riots, right? The, um, well, there's a lot of, like, the IRA and that, the old, the, you know, that whole situation. So they didn't want to put a, a firecracker into a kid's program? Because, yeah, yeah. So um, what did the jack-in-the-box do? Did it still blow things up? It just jumped up and it didn't blow Messed things, things up. Messed things around? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I guess I have never, s I assume it does, it did the same things that the, um, that the uh, firecracker tool did uh, visually. Yeah. Uh, they just and, didn't want to have that visual. Yeah. And uh, at one point, there was a petition by some teachers because uh, kid picks ended up being used in schools a lot. It was like of a course. standard 
uh, program, and they, there was a petition to have that removed. Uh, Specifically that, that tool? tool? That tool removed, yeah. And it, it, when, it, when was that? Oh, this would have been in the probably, I don't know, mid-90s. Okay, so I, I was in elementary school then. Yeah, I mean, they did. It wasn't removed, but although it, although the current version, which I'm not really involved in designing, uh, d- did remove it. It's not there anymore. So the the parent-teacher petition took over. Apparently, in the long run, it, it it happened. But I mean, and I can see see that. But at the same time, um, it was fun. So at what point did it appear on every elementary school computer lab? Um, Gee, you know, it wasn't that it wasn't that uh, long from when it started out because there was really nothing else. Um, I think it was around KidPix Deluxe, maybe. Yeah, yeah, KidPix Deluxe, which was which would have been the first CD-ROM, actually. That would have been the really? CD-ROM version. Yeah, um, and I know the original version was used a lot in uh, universities. I know Brown used it to teach uh, no basic, joke basic uh, literacy, computer literacy. It was when it started out it was kind of a cult thing. It wasn't just for kids. Right. You know, now it is pretty much just for kids, but with the first version that I did, I mean it's like everything I did, I, you know, my son had to get a kick out of and but I did too. I yeah. had to find it interesting. So uh, but it was taught at the Ivy League level as well as right, yeah. elementary schools. Yeah. Because at that time there um, were lots of students coming in who had never used a computer. You know, and so that was a, they felt a good way to introduce them. I mean, the the remarkable thing about that, how the program interacted with the user base was that it 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 not only made them more comfortable with computers, but you could even argue that it was like the easy transition for our generation to get into like Photoshop. Like it was mm-hmm. playing around with art on the computer. It's just like an easy transition. I remember it would I would always play it on the computers at my elementary school. I grew up in Mountain View and so obviously, you know, Silicon Valley schools right are going to... Uh, yeah. Where did you say Brodobund was based at the time? It was in um, uh, well, Novato. Uh, well, at the time, it was actually San Rafael. Okay. So yeah. right, it's yeah. super close. Yeah. Um, so did you ever make trips down there to... Oh, yeah. Figure yeah. them? Yeah. Yeah, I made quite a number. Uh, and it was always fun. They, they were actually great to work with. I mean, I they could have... They could have done. They could have cheated me or done anything they wanted. I mean, I was just amazed this was all happening. Yeah. But everything they did was really quite quite honest, and uh, they had my interests, I think, at heart. And um, didn't turn out that way later on when the company was sold several times and the yeah. product went to. But at first, it was a wonderful experience. So, who owns it now? Um, oh, the, uh, or who Kid, develops well, it? Well, Kidpix is owned by a pretty good company now. It's uh, called Matt Kiev. And uh, I have, you know, I've talked with uh, and visited a number of times the, the, the owner of that. Um, the company is in Boston, but their programming is all done in uh, Kiev, uh, in Ukraine. In Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. You should go over there and leverage them to put the firecracker back in. Right. Yeah, they, <laughs> they probably have a lot of that going on. So. I remember back, it was like 2000 or 2001, um, when I was in Mountain View, um, took the day off of school because my dad and I drove up to San Francisco to go to Macworld mm-hmm. convention when those were still going on. Oh, yeah, on. I loved going to those. Yeah, and uh, I don't remember a lot from what happened, you know, engineers running around showing off their programs. I do remember I went home with a lime green aluminum lunchbox-sized Kid Picks yeah, deluxe yeah, version. Yeah, yeah, I, I still got a couple of those in my yeah. archive. Yeah, I have a huge Kid Picks uh, collection of reviews and memorabilia. At home? Versions. Yeah. 
Is your garage just stacked? There's quite a bit of stuff. I need to go through <laughs> and uh, figure out what I want to keep. But, you know, I, I kind of kept everything. So. so, like, one from each version? Like, what's the, like, is there weird Kid Picks merchandise that's out there? Um, well, there were giveaways. Well, like that lunchbox well, is a good giveaways. example. There was also something that I loved, which was uh, it was one of these vibrating pens. It was like a real pen, like a ballpoint pen, but it has a little motor in it that's has a little weight that's off center. And so, you, you, when you draw, it kind of makes a kid picks line in the real world. Okay. But, it, but they they had uh, given that away. I think it wasn't sold as a separate thing, but it was given away as a product. So it's like a real life kid picks tool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just boy, a bunch of little things like that. Yeah. What was the name of that tool in KidPix? Was there um, the one that wiggled? Yeah. Well, it was just the uh, just the pencil tool. Okay. But then for every tool, there were all these options, and so I always wanted to have an option that would do the normal thing. Uh, sure. But then try to uh, have things that would be surprising uh, and uh, maybe hard to control, which is one of the differences so between KidPix. Yeah, that I I wanted to put in a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of chaos and right. maybe you weren't always in control and, and randomness. Um, it's like the the cracked out cousin of MS Paint. Yeah, yeah. I hope this doesn't annoy you by me bringing it up, but there there was a, a bug in KidPix that I'm sure you're aware of. And if you use the magic eraser and scrubbed away on the canvas, mm-hmm. the words Craig Hickman is Satan's love child would pop up. Oh, wow. You got one of those. I don't think I saw it, but I read about it. Yeah, that th- those were. <laughs> I guess I can talk about that now. Please. That was um, the programmers. This is a world exclusive here, not on the inside story. The the programmers at Broderbund. Um, uh, well, whenever a new product comes out, there's like a deadline. Everybody is really nervous. Everybody wants it to be just right. And if there are any bugs in the program. They actually have to kind of start over with the testing. Even if you make one little change in the code, they have to start over. So uh, when when uh, the, pre- the the previous version of uh, KidPix, the one you're talking about, came out, one of the programmers, as a joke, put that in and then went to the product manager and said, oh, no, look at this. It went out like this. And, of course, she was terrified. And, but then, you know, it's like, well, that was a joke. Ha, ha, ha. Well, as it turned out, that code was uh, forgotten about and left in the program for the next update. And it was never found, and it was, and it shipped. Um, but as soon as they found out, they really went into, you know, kind of panic mode. Yeah. And like, uh, like anyone who registered the program, they contacted, and they tried to bring back, they tried to, um, to, to call back any copies they could. Uh, but, uh, when did that go out? Uh, you know, I don't remember the year, but uh, yeah, it, it was uh, the pre pre CD ROM. It was yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was still in the floppy age. It was still in the floppy age, but uh, yeah, that got in there, and uh, and Broderbund was very. I remember I got the phone call, and they were explaining to me <laughs> what had they were they were very apologetic. Oh no! Uh, and um, but uh, you know, but they did everything they could to bring those get those back uh, yeah and this actually is the first time i've ever heard uh of, uh, of one getting out and being reported so that's interesting I, I, so what happened to that guy uh he Did, kept, do you know who it was yeah yeah uh he kept his job really he was very very good 
but apparently, uh, from what I heard, it was a little touch and go there for a while. Were you on like good terms with him overall, though? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was uh, for me. I, I think um, it, it didn't bother me as much as other people who were kind of more kind of in the middle of the marketing and the and, the, and whatnot. So yeah, I mean, did Broderbund ever hear of like? Hey, my child just used the magic eraser tool, and now she's asking me who yes. who Satan's love child Apparently is. There were, and that was when they would say, "Oh, you please, that's a mistake. You know, we will send you a new version. Please return that one." They they really did everything they could uh, to uh, not just sort of give people a replacement, but get back the old ones. Of course, now with the internet, you can't really get things back. But back then, it was more of a physical object, and right. so you could. But so you can easily like send it back to Broderbund and they'll snap it in half and throw it in a fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So was that guy, was that programmer just like so far up the line that he could easily slip something like that in? Um, well, he was a senior, uh, yeah, a programmer. I mean, he was like a, he's very good. That's, that's also, he's very, very good. And, and, uh, it's almost like a self-sabotage thing though, in a it way, is. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and where it was done as a joke and, and guess what happens? <laughs> <laughs> The joke comes true. So, what did like? Did they have? Did Brodobun have to like comb through every new, like, development after that, or every update, and make sure they're keeping a close eye on the programmers, especially um, that guy? I, well, no, I'm sure he never made that mistake again, and uh, I don't know whether they were more careful after that because they're pretty darn careful. And uh, yeah, although this case is a, a little odd, and it didn't happen all the time. It was kind of a random thing that would pop up. Yeah. Well, actually, where did you see that? Where did you read about it? I read it on Reddit. Oh, okay. It was on, um, it was just somebody saying, hey, remember Kid Picks? And someone else was like, yeah, do you remember <laughs> seeing Craig Hickman as Satan's love child? Um, actually, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if, you know, the, um, how when people go to Google, they'll type in, like, why is, you know, Norway so, and it'll be, like, happy, rich, mm-hmm. you know, pleasant, whatever. Um, I'm surprised if you say no to this, but when you type in Craig Hickman is into Google, Satan's love child pops up. Is that right? Yeah. That's, well, maybe there's more attention to that. Uh, so that's interesting. People know about it, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Well, there are other Craig Hickmans, but I'm, that one would be referring to no. <laughs> That would be you. That would yeah, be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just for the record, are you Satan's love child? No, I'm not. So I, I don't. Well, I don't think so. Don't would you know? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for letting me bother you about that one. No, I was no, very no, nervous no, about good, asking you about that. It's good to one. get that off my chest, Harry. Though, because I actually I have been very reluctant to. Well, at the time I did want to talk about it because right. We you know didn't want that to. I'm gonna transition now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about oxide. Sure. You published this last year. Right. Um, it is a collection of photos. Um, it's a like very specific aesthetic throughout the the book. Um, it's a lot of like decrepit signs in rusty towns, mm-hmm. and it seems very familiar. And it looks like if I were to stick a pin in a map, I would be able to be like, "Oh, that's." I feel like I've been to that mm-hmm. place, but. At the same time, it's I, I can't tell how much of it is actually a real place because you used Photoshop on quite a lot of this, right? Actually, all of them. 
all yeah, of them? Yeah, yeah. Everything is uh, all the pretty much all the text. I think all the any text that appears in the pictures is all composited. And uh, yeah, I kind of made a fictional place based on uh, kind of Willamette Valley, I guess. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, would you mind reading the introduction? Okay. Let's see. Oxide is a work of fiction. On its surface is a record of human actions, ideas, dreams, and failures, modified by time and natural forces. You might think of it as a setting for a larger fictional work that has yet to be written. You are welcome to write it. Let me know how it goes. So, so how did you conceive of the aesthetic? You, you, you're a photographer by trade. You have opened the Blue Sky Gallery up mm -hmm. in Portland, right. a very popular photography gallery that just celebrated its 40th anniversary right. last year. Um, how did you come up with this aesthetic of this alternative, you know, inverted Willamette Valley yeah, type of yeah. town? It's like Cottage Grove, but sort of nightmarish. But there's this underlying mm -hmm. humor to everything that's <laughs> okay. like, I, it's really like mm -hmm. charming. But where did this come from? Yeah. Well, um, it, there are a couple of places it started from. First, um, um, uh, the, my photography had been and has, you know, continues to be to a large extent kind of non-manipulated kind of straight photography. Um, I teach a class called digital imaging uh, in the art department, and I know a lot of the students were interested in uh, doing more compositing. And so I thought, well, you know, it would be good for me to, to kind of, you know, get my skills honed a little better so I can teach it. Well, once I started, I couldn't stop, uh, and I did actually, uh, you know, several hundred pictures, mm -hmm. and because it just seemed so wonderful that you could take something that was uh, like, you know, a, a real a real world situation, modify it in a way um, that it was still believable, and so I actually wanted to walk this edge. I didn't want them to to scream, you know, composited, uh, you know, bizarre uh, picture. I wanted them to just almost be normal but not quite, right? you know, something that people might do or might put up or whatever, but, but probably wouldn't, or, or things that are kind of, uh, what, uh, you know, just sort of out of context a little bit. So uh, that was that part. And then uh, I got, just for the fun of it, I get these ideas, you know, and, uh, and like one of them I wanted to do was to make a fake blog. And so I made a fake blog of a, a character I uh, named Payne Fresco. And he lived in the Willamette Valley. He was a photographer. He wasn't very good, but he was sincere. And he never had a lot of success. Uh, but that kind of make you can kind of make some funny things happen with, you know, his, his sad failures. Although every now and then, uh, you know, he would have some great insight. But otherwise, it's like that. And so I started making illustrations for, you know, his blog. Um, and, uh, and Is there an actual website or is this? Not any longer. Um, I've thought about starting it again, but it's just one of those things that um, one of those ideas that ran its course, I think. But right. But maybe it's maybe uh, its time wasn't done. Maybe it, uh, I might get back to it at some point. At any rate, that's how I kind of started um, this, and also started with that kind of environment. Um, uh, so were these photos taken around Eugene? Most of them were made either uh, well from uh, I suppose as far south as uh, uh, you know Myrtle Creek up to Portland. But, okay, but the majority were in uh, in and around Eugene. So okay, all the text yeah. is uh, put in in the aftermath. Uh, a lot of composites. Mm -hmm. So like, if you were to give me a percentage, how much of what I'm looking at is real and how much is fake? Mm -hmm. Well, 
it's probably 80% real. Mm -hmm. But in general, if there's anything that is, you know, graphic, it is composited. Okay. Because uh, most of these, like these walls, are, are generally blank. Um, I loved, there's a there's probably a point, I think it's um, about 70-ish pages in, 60, 70, where you go into like this academic field where it's like, <laughs> here's an abandoned yeah. freight truck that says Department of English yeah. on the side, or like this boarded up storefront that says Department of Journalism, and right. it's like all these newspapers covering it right. up. Yeah. Uh, I just realized this yesterday because I was looking at the Department of English one. You have a little QR code on the freight truck, and when you scan it, it says, call me Ishmael. You did that. I did it. Good. <laughs> nice touch. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I liked having little details that are, you know, not just totally arbitrary, that they can be kind of fun. And, and, and maybe you want to look at the book a number of times. Yeah. You don't necessarily get it all at once. Um, yeah, it has different sections. And this is a not a completely obvious, but every time there is one of these sections where there's a pole with a, something on it, that starts a new section. Okay. Um, it's like a new chapter. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And so let me find the, uh, yeah, here we go. Here's the, uh, it starts out the Academy. Where is our... And the Atomic one. Could you go back to that one? Mm -hmm. There, I just noticed this before you came in, but those glasses are your signature trademark glasses illustration, oh, right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, like, uh, school of law, anthropology, yeah, romance languages and philosophy. And, yeah, there's the, uh, okay. the academy. So, but for instance, this is all this post. Of course, people who are listening can't see this. But <laughs> We're a, talking uh, about a photography book on a podcast. Yeah. There, <laughs> it's but problematic. There's, yeah. But there's a poll, and these poll. I did a whole series of poll pictures uh, down in. Uh, it's near Alton. It's the park. It isn't Alton Baker Park, but it's the one that's on, mm. on the Island Park. Uh, is that what? It, yeah, maybe that's it's, what that's it is. closer to Springfield. Yeah. Well, this is the other way. This is uh, closer to downtown. My, my Skinner, oh, okay. Skinner Butte. At any rate, the the uh, poles there had uh, been wonderfully oxidized, just beautifully oxidized, and so I did a whole series of photographs of them. So I had those, and then I, then this is actually from uh, uh, the sign that's on it is from Portland, and then the little piece of looks like notebook paper taped to it was to totally fabricated in Photoshop. So there are lots of... Uh, so you drew that on your computer, the note? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so uh, this particular section actually came from the Payne Fresco blog where he decided he was going to start his own university. And it was a very kind of uh, funky, low-rent thing. Yeah. You know? And... Um, and I, I like to do have the juxtaposition of the idea of a university as being, you know, I mean, a serious and a beautiful place with a beautiful campus, everything being ideal, uh, with this, you know, kind of approach, uh, kind of a low rent um, uh, kind of a, a approach. Yeah. And so it's, I mean, I, I mean, I find that kind of interesting, kind of poignant, uh, and uh, and you'd never find it, you know, it would never be there. But like it's the Department of Philosophy on the. You know, and this is like composited uh, onto a picture of the side of a car wash. And, <laughs> so um, you're going, you're coming to Eugene Public Library 6 p.m. on the 21st. Um, the little pamphlet that the people at the library are handing out says illustrated talk. Oh, yeah. Highly illustrated. What do you have planned? Uh, I'll be showing most of the book. Um, it's projected and... Uh, and probably have some kid picks things and, and some other projects I've been working on uh, recently. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I want to wrap this up soon. I, I just met one of your former students, uh, not yesterday, but the day before. 
um, Jalan Ember, and he said he was in your programming for artists mm-hmm. class, um, where each student is given, I hope I'm saying this right, Arduino? Yes. Could you explain what that is? Yeah. The Arduino is a uh, micro- microcontroller, well, it's a combination of things. It's, it's like a microcontroller and a programming environment that lets people program um, the microcontroller to control devices, or it can be hooked up to sensors. Um, and, and so you can kind of make what, you know, make, I won't say whatever you want, uh, but uh, make all kinds of devices. Uh, but it's a template. You can, you can go off from it. Oh, yeah. It's, it's actually a complete, uh, you have lots of flexibility. It's actually a wonderful thing. And you will find that, um, that uh, you know, if you never thought you would do programming, let alone electronics, uh, that actually um, you find yourself doing it. Uh, and and having fun and having it demystified. I love teaching art students because the art students have ideas and the you know, things people do are really quite amazing. And, but most of them came in not thinking that they would ever do this. Right, that there would be a crossover to working with computer chips. Right, yeah. It seems that seems to be a commonality in a lot of your work is demystifying, you know, uh, computers for an artist's perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my friend said he uh, he had an Arduino and he covered it in fur so that whenever you pet it, it vibrates. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect example. Of yeah. per- perfect example. <laughs> uh, what, what other sort of stuff did students make with these Arduinos? Well, uh, most of them are kind of, you know, art-based. Uh, a lot of students make various kinds of musical instruments. Really? Um, sometimes that it's like a, it, it is a, interesting because of the input device used and uh, um and uh, other times, uh, you know, because it's like it uses an interface to MIDI, um, uh, a lot of really interesting things there. Uh, some students actually make practical things, uh, you know, to kind of check the, the um, moisture in soil and kind of can water a plant and that okay. kind of thing. Uh, so I'm not, I don't really require that it either be art or be practical. It's like whatever, whatever you want to do, here are these tools now, you know, figure something out. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's really kind of amazing too when you think about that I'm asking uh, students who have never done this before to invent something original, um, and they do. Giving them that opportunity to make something original, do you feel like that just opens up the floodgates and you see a lot of like stuff that they wouldn't normally make? I yeah, and I and I I hope afterwards they continue doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Craig, thank you so much. Um, again, the man is Craig Hickman. The book is Oxide. The program is Kid Picks. Uh, you can find him at the Eugene Public Library at 6 p.m. next Wednesday, the 21st. He'll be hosting an illustrated talk about Oxide. Uh, he's a UO digital arts professor, developer of Kid Picks, dean of the School of Hard Knocks, and <laughs> not Satan's love child. Craig, thanks. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>